Hebrews chapter 12, and today we're going to tackle one verse. <laughs> Some of you were like, are we ever going to finish the book of Hebrews? And uh, uh, we will pick up the pace uh, in the coming weeks, God willing, but uh, for today, there's enough here in this one verse uh, to consume our time. And I will just read it, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a lot there, right? There's a lot there to, um, to really dissect and, and understand. And so uh, we're going to take our time with that. Now, maybe as I read that ver- verse, you uh, maybe you had one or two responses. Oh, good. I'm looking forward to this. I kind of need a kick in the pants. Or maybe, oh, oh good. My, I'm glad my spouse is here. She really needs to hear this. <laughs> Something along those lines. Or maybe on the other side, it's like, oh no, I'm going to be reminded of how inadequate I am, how much of a failure I am, I'm going to be beat down. Maybe those are two possible responses that you may have. And, and really, when you think about walking in holiness, right, living the Christian life, um, running the Christian race, remember, that's what we've been um, taking time with, when you think about that you know, there's, there's really two extremes as far as, as holiness goes, right? And how we view maybe mindsets. You have legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other hand. And we need to be careful of that. Legalism can be horrible and bad because you're basing, you're, you're basing uh, your standing before God on the things that you do. On the other hand, it's obedience is a good thing, right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? But some can focus too much on externals. You see, holiness is something that's internal. And when you focus on externals and your looks and your words and all of that, um, you can really be, be tripped up. I mean, think of all the examples maybe that you know of just in your lifetime. I mean, I've known of so many. It was like back 20 years ago, if you didn't homeschool your kids, well, you must not be real holy, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, some would say that if females aren't wearing a skirt down to their ankles or maybe, you know, four inches past the knee, you know, and actually measuring it and all of that, that is a mark of holiness, right? And then, I mean, you can laugh all you want, but if this is, these are real things. Not playing with playing cards, because those were, came out of the 13th century. They're of the devil. Um, these do's and don'ts that can make you feel superior, you know? You, these man-made rules. You know, this whole idea, well, I never go dancing, and I don't chew tobacco, and I don't go with girls that do. You know, that old saying. Uh, <laughs> But then you have the other side, the antinomianism, where on the one hand, it's certainly good to rest in the finished work of Christ, right? I mean, he has accomplished it all. Our works aren't going to earn us into heaven. But the problem is, is you can become too comfortable with that. You rest on the indicatives, what God has done, and you can tend to push aside the imperatives of us living it out. And so we need to strike that balance. It's very important to understand the indicative and the imperative, right? 
The indicative is a statement of fact. Jesus Christ has purchased our salvation. The imperative, I mean, you think of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, all the riches we have in Christ, right? We've been predestined, we've been elected, we've been adopted as sons, we've been redeemed, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. All of those blessings, and you get to chapter 4 and verse 1, the application starts coming. Walk in unity, walk in peace with one another. In light of those indicatives, we are to respond and live our lives in a certain way. The imperative does not earn us the right to get the blessings of the indicative. Let me say that again. Doing these outward things, seeking to walk in unity and peace and all that doesn't earn you the blessings of the indicative. That has already been done with Christ. So let's read verses. I'm going to read this fuller um, section, just 14 to 17. Our text today, obviously, is just verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And there is no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for your special help by your Spirit even now as we can consider this exhortation to us that we are to be on the hunt for. We are to be diligently seeking after peace and holiness. Give us understanding into this text now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So just remembering the context, really, of the whole book, right? Chapter 4 to chapter 10 set forth Christ as our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. There were some applications at the end of 10, and then 11 was a grand illustration of living by faith. And therefore, in light of that, we've taken some time here in chapter 12, this metaphor of a race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All the things were to fix our eyes on Christ, were to calculate and to consider Christ. But running the race can become difficult. We can get tripped up. We need help. We need encouragement. And so the Father loves us enough to discipline us. And that's verses 5 to 11 there, right? All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields something the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then he comes back to the metaphor of the race and and, and really emphasizes the the corporate nature of it. Therefore, strengthen the hands uh, that are weak and the knees that are feeble. We're to to not just strengthen our own, but to look out for our brother and our sister. And then in verse 13, we're to remove obstacles, right? He says, make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame, may not be put out of joint. Or to uh, orthos, our paths. And, and, and when a weak brother is coming and there's impediments and stones in the way, we're to clear it out so that he can run the race. Remember, we're, not, we're running in such a way to win, but we're not running in such a way that others lose. We all want to win in this Christian race. And so now there's a shift. We begin a new section. There's a change in tone. We're shifting from the metaphor 
of a race now to short, pithy exhortations that are going to come at us like a machine gun. Okay, These exhortations really begin the fifth and final warning section of Hebrews. Remember, we've, we've talked about these before. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Actually, just turn back there. I think it's worth reviewing these. I'm not going to read every word, but uh, verse chapter 2 and verse 1, already a warning. For this reason, in light of who Christ is, in light of all of these psalms, in light of that he, he sits at the right hand of God, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. This church is being persecuted. There's a a temptation to go back to the synagogue. And then in chapter 3, turn the page, and beginning in verse 7, Therefore the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And it goes on to say, Just as the children of Israel did in the 40 years of wandering. And so he says in verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart that what? Falls away from the living God. Chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning Him we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And he goes on to say, you have need of the elementary things to be taught to you. Chapter 6 and verse 4, this is still part of that warning section. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and have fallen and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them. Chapter 10. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. 10.26, if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Those are the four previous sections. And then um, some might say that this, this last warning section begins at 25. Certainly 25 to 29 is there. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking Our God is a consuming fire. But others think that it really begins here because of the nature of these exhortations. And so so let's dive in to our text. It's a wonderful thing to know that God is at work in us, sanctifying us. G.I. Packer said, If regeneration, that is our conversion, right, is a work of new creation, sanctification is our new formation. If regeneration is a new birth, sanctification is this new growth. He's not necessarily introducing here the writer um, new and profound truths like he did with Christ is according to the order of Melchizedek. And we're like, well, he's got neither father nor mother nor genealogy and all of that. That's a profound new truth, right? When he explained that. He's not really introducing profound new truths, but things that we already know. Things that we should be doing. Putting away bitterness. Seeking to walk in peace. right? Walking in holiness. So let's look at this. 14a, simply pursue peace. What kind of peace are we to pursue? Well, this peace and holiness, we could say, we're encouraged, uh, that we're encouraged to pursue are already divine gifts that have been given to us through the gospel. Peace comes as the result of Christ's death. 
The writer talks about peace. You remember in chapter 13, 20, we often use it for a benediction. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd, right? He's a God of peace. Also, Christ is our great high priest, is in that line of Melchizedek, as I just said, who, it's said of him in 7-2, king of Salem, which is king of peace. So we're to walk in peace. Christ has already reconciled us to God. Colossians 1-20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him. You see, pursuing peace is really loving others, isn't it? If I love you, I want to be at peace with you. So there's a sense in which just loving others naturally, the natural implication should be that you be at peace. But peace is a two-way street. I can do all of my part, but if another person, a co-worker, a neighbor is just constantly instigating conflict, I'm not going to be able to be at peace, right? So it's, it's a two-way street, but you are responsible for yourself to do everything that you know to be at peace. Now, this word pursue, um, I want to talk about that for a minute. It's a, it has a broad range of meanings. It means to follow hard after, uh, to pursue with earnestness or diligence um, in order to obtain. It's actually an aggressive word. It, Translated persecute sometimes, and I'll give you some of those examples in just a minute. It's the idea to chase after one's enemies. When the Apostle Paul was struck down on the Damascus Road, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Remember, he was there at the stoning of Stephen, and finally, uh, Christ is getting a hold of his life. But that's the word, persecute me. Why are you so intent at, at hunting me down and hunting down my children, the children of God, with, with locking up Christians into prison? It's kind of like those hound dogs in the south, you know, where, where they, 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 they take them out for hunting and they let them go and they go and get all the raccoons. They're hunting down the raccoons and bringing them back. That's kind of the idea. And it's a diverse word. In Romans 12, verses 13 and 14, it occurs twice, and it's translated radically differently. Let me read it for you. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's the word. Pursuing. Right? You wouldn't say persecuting hospitality, but you're you're driven in such a way that you want to have people in your home. You want to entertain in such a way. Then it goes on. Bless those who persecute you. That's the same word. Bless those who are pursuing you. So, diverse meanings. We're all passionate about something. Some are passionate about football. Others, it's basketball. Others, it's football, you know, if you're from outside of the <laughs> right? Uh, they, they, they think it's funny, we, you know, our, our football, we toss a football like that. That's not a football, they say. But uh, we're passionate about something. Maybe Elon Musk, you know what he's passionate about? Life on Mars, setting up a new civilization there. I think that's going to be his life's work, really, you know, and all the other stuff that he's doing. Um, Some are really passionate about certain video games and getting to the next level, the highest level, the highest level, and you're passionate about it. Others are can be passionate about social media and 
How many likes can my Instagram posts get or my Facebook posts? And you're constantly checking it because you're, you're, you're so consumed by it. The writer here is telling us to be passionate about something that's very important. Pursue, hunt down peace and holiness. Of course, he goes on to say, without which no one will see the Lord. So that, that, that last phrase shows us the intensity, the, the vital importance that we get this right and understanding it. Now, in the Greek text, of course, it says pursue peace in the English, but Peace is actually the first word in the Greek text. And the Greeks, what they would do, they don't have word order like we do. The word that they wanted to emphasize the most, they'd throw at the very beginning of the verse. And the beginning of the verse. And so it's peace. It's in the emphatic position. This does not mean just seeking peace for yourself like some inner peace. Doesn't that sound nice? That's some inner peace. Have a therapy session. Just get that inner peace. Is that what the verse is talking about? No! It's talking about peace with others, right? Peace with others. It's, it's, it's not even being at peace as much as giving, pronouncing a blessing upon them in such a way. And you think of shalom in the Old Testament, 250 so times, broad range of meanings, but in general, Pastor Jim Adams, who, who was preaching here just a few months ago, uh, every time I talk to him on the phone, and every t- ever since I've known him, as, as we're parting ways, shalom. <laughs> you know, and that that's a word conveys a lot. May God's blessings be upon you. It's not just peace like like that, but it's it's peace and prosperity and blessing from God, and and that ties to the yeah. What, and actually, Joseph uses it in Genesis forty three, where he says, "Peace to you. Do not be afraid." To his little brother Benjamin. Well, the New Testament is Irene in the original. It's a close dynamic equivalent to Shalom, Shalom but uh, it refers to a not only a state of tran- tranquility, but also an absence of conflict. It's the idea also of giving a blessing from God and the person of Christ. What is, how does Paul open up some of his letters? Grace and peace, right? And so it communicates that. Um, Zechariah's prophecy, which I might be preaching from uh, in a few weeks, uh, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 79, it says, to give light to those that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Furthermore, we, we learned in verses 5 to 11, we took two sermons on God's loving discipline, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, right? But what's that end result? It yields that peaceful fruit of righteousness. Paul in Romans 14 says, so then we pursue the things which make peace and the building up of one another. You have both nuances in that one verse. So those who are at peace with God are responsible to pursue peace in their relationships with others it's an important aspect of our growth and sanctification. If we're constantly harboring, if we're in conflict and we're harboring bitter thoughts towards somebody, we're not being sanctified very well, are we? We're not walking in holiness and purity before the Lord. This pursuing peace is not an optional thing. I don't feel like it. I'm angry today. You know, it's just not an optional thing. We must pursue it. 
I shared this story before, but of the two Scottish sisters, actually in the Church of Scotland, and they lived together, they shared a bedroom together their entire lives, they never married, and early on in their lives, they had a sharp disagreement, and down with the tape to divide the room, and they never spoke to each other again for decades. Now, they probably weren't true Christians, right? But for decades, but the story goes on to say, as the one was trying to fall asleep, and the other one was already asleep, she could hear her breathing. And that just that breath just caused her to have greater resentment and bitterness and anger within her own hard heart. What a shame, right? God has not called us to that kind of ridiculous living. We are to be at peace. And that's why you'll hear from this pulpit, keep short accounts. Short accounts with God. If you've sinned in some way, you've looked at something inappropriate this past week, go to Him and confess it, right? If you've, if you've been sharp with a friend or a spouse or whatever, confess it. Keep short accounts. Walk and pursue peace. Well, with whom are we to pursue peace? Well, I've already alluded to it. I think it definitely means all men, right? In the workplace, your neighbors, uh, those people that you come into contact with. But it's especially important in the context of the church. Read, look, read the pastoral epistles of how many warnings Paul gives to Timothy and Titus about disunity and discord and division and how they are all to be rebuked, right? God cares about the purity and the unity of his church. So especially within the church. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, conflict in the church brings glory to Satan. And it does. And it disgraces our God. Few things will grieve God more and impede the great race of which we're on more than conflict in the body of Christ. In fact, conflict in the church and the failure to pursue peace is the most public reason so many never finish the race. So, let us walk in peace. Now, this doesn't mean peace at all costs. You're right. Well, I mean, our church is going to have a uh, a gay marriage or something, let's say, and our church would never do that, but, you know, and say, so, oh, I won't say anything because I just want to keep the peace, right? No, you're to speak up for truth, right? Spurgeon puts it like this, peace is to be studied, but not such a peace as would lead us to violate holiness by conforming to the ways of the unregenerate and impure men. You see what he's saying here? We don't conform our ways to the unregenerate it's so far as to keeping peace. It goes on, we're only so far to yield for peace's sake as never to yield to a principle. We are to be peaceful so far as never to be at peace with sin. And then he goes on, uh, peaceful with men, but contending earnestly for evil principles. We're not to be at peace with that. And then he uses the illustration of an alpine hunter pursuing an antelope and how diligently he pursues it and that's how we are to pursue peace so that's our first point pursue peace now the word pursue only occurs once there but it definitely applies to both because of the conjunction and now we're to pursue holiness the exhortation to strive for peace is now linked to the pursuit of personal holiness you want to read a good book 
Pursuit of Holiness, right? By Jerry Bridges. Excellent, excellent book. He's written some, a couple of follow-ups to that. That was one of the early books I read. First year I was saved. Well, what kind of holiness is the writer talking of? In, in the NIS it says, the sanctification, right? I think we all know what sanctification is, right? You're Reformed brethren, right? You love justification. We've we got to understand sanctification. Um, and it's important that we get the definitions right because the last part of the verse without which no one will see the Lord. You know, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord, as it says earlier in Hebrews. And so we need to get our terms right. Sanctification and holiness have the same root word. Hagiazo is the verb to sanctify. Hagios means is holy. It's set apart. It's consecrated, right? It's set apart from common use unto spiritual use. I use the illustration of that desk, you know, at the um, uh, office supply store, and you've got all these desks. But once one is bought, and once one is set in my study, and all of my books and all of my study materials are there, that desk is now sanctified, set apart for the use of my study. And so that's the idea. We, when we are saved, we are now set apart for God. It, It includes the ideas of consecration purification, dedication, and, of course, holiness. Now, is it possible for men to strive for a type of holiness that does not please the Lord? Read the Gospels, right? The Pharisees, right? I mean, they were so consumed with externals. Jesus had sharp words for these these religious hypocrites, really. Jesus condemned them of his day having only an outward holiness. Now, sanctification, big word. I just basically described it in summary form. But the Bible uses sanctification in different ways. One is a positional sanctification, right? We are set apart and holy, marked out for Him. Nothing's going to change that positional sanctification. Really, chapters 1 to 10 has been setting that forth. What Christ has accomplished on the cross, how He still intercedes for us, and all of that, it's, it's already been set forth. This positional sanctification is similar to justification. Just turn back to verse 10. Sorry, chapter 10, verse 10. <laughs> By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. By His will, we've been sanctified, past tense, once and for all. That's a clear verse speaking of positional sanctification. And of course, it's based on, if you flip back to 9.13, for if the blood of bulls and goats and, um, uh, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling and those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, argument from the lesser to the greater, how much more the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Holiness is granted as a gift of God. Our guilt is imputed to Christ on the cross as He was suffering for our sins. And His perfect life and His perfect righteousness is imputed to our account. So that when the Father looks at us, He sees us, the righteousness of Christ. But here in our text, brethren, it's speaking of progressive sanctification progressive 
communicates the idea of we're making progress, right? Maybe sometimes one step at a time, four or five steps, whoops, a step back, and then sometimes proceeding on, right? And that's the idea here. It's a progressive sanctification. It's the process by which God is working in you a renewed life, right? He's renovating us, as it were. Look at chapter 12 and verse 10. We just looked at this, the end of it. Uh, He disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in His holiness. This sanctification does not happen to you while you sit uh, sit back in your lazy boy chair and, and determined to do nothing and just wait for God to zap you or to do something. That's not, that's not what this is speaking of. Uh, Paul, probably the clearest verse, Paul in Philippians 2 and verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more my absence, what does he say? Work out your salvation. Does he say, work for your salvation? No, of course not, right? Read the rest of Paul, right? That would be absolutely wrong. But work out your salvation, how? In fear and trembling. Now, if verse 13 wasn't there, I mean, I don't know about you, but I would be in fear and trembling because I'm trying to work it out, but I don't know, I don't have assurance that I'm going to work it out the way God wants it. But verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you see his good pleasure, it's something he loves. It's something he's not going to forsake. It's something that he's intimately involved in. So we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the encouragement where I can have calm as I'm working it out is I know that He is working in me this very thing. So this sanctifying process in our lives, it occurs in the lives of us believers. To to put it differently, the the born-again Christian reflects God's virtues. And in so doing, he becomes more and more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Probably... Westminster Shorter has an excellent definition for this, but this is from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Sanctification is that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which He delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature into the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. That's what sanctification is. Well, since you've been justified, since you are positionally sanctified, and now you're told to pursue holiness. Now, the question is, is, is not, not, it's not like strive for the righteousness of Christ. Pursue holiness so that you can get the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. That's already happened in justification. If you are converted, that has already happened. No, there's something else in view here. It's because we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's because we've been born again. It's because he's, he's already begun that work that we want to please Him in every respect. 2 Corinthians 7.1 7, Therefore, having these promises, all the promises of the Gospel, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements 
of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, sanctification you might think of is is like has anybody looked at a stock market chart? I mean, now we're hyperinflating our currency. Well, we're inflating it a lot. But stocks, you know, stock chart is kind of sort of goes like this, right? It starts down here on the left, and then it kind of goes up, but then there's a little correction that goes up higher. Typically, that's kind of how it goes. And that's really over the course of 40, 50 years as a believer, right? We're progressing in our sanctification. We're not earning our way into salvation. I'm not saying that, but we're perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We're, conf- we're being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. But then there's those whoops, backslidings, maybe corrections, whatever you want to say, but ultimately it continues to go up. When it goes down, if you go up some and it goes all the way down and crashes, that's an indication that you were never in Christ to begin with. You might think of it as um, you know these home and garden shows, and uh, you know they, they, they here's a fixer upper. It's got blown out windows and rotted wood and all that, and they begin renovating it, right? And that's what God does with us. We are all as sinners. We're, we're like fixer uppers, right? That need all this help that we can't help ourselves. But He comes in and He renovates from the inside out, and it's a glorious thing. Of course, the standard of pursuing holiness is God's perfect holiness. As Peter tells us there, be, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, for it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul tells Timothy also at the end of the first letter, First Timothy, flee these things, you man of God, and pursue, there it is again, but this time pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. You man of God, be pursuing those things. Well, let's take up and consider this last part of the verse. We've seen pursue peace, pursue holiness or sanctification. And what in the world does he mean without which no one will see the Lord The writer is not saying that we've earned the right to God's presence by our level of holiness, by that stock chart getting up across 30,000 on the Dow or whatever. Uh, It's not saying that at all, that if 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 we reach the certain level, then we're guaranteed to see the face of the Lord. No, Christ has already made us fit. I read it, I'll read it again in 10.10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, and that once and for all is a glorious thing. You can sink your teeth into that. You can take that to the bank. Once and for all, payment has been done. The process of sanctification can add nothing to the perfection of our standing in the finished work of Christ. No matter what you do in this life, you cannot add to that. But true Christians, because they've been born again, will pursue these things. Unbelievers are unfit. They lack the tools in the toolbox, namely the Holy Spirit, right? They can have outward reformation, right? They might quit smoking and stop drinking Jack Daniels for breakfast or something. That's an external reformation. But there's no Holy Spirit that's doing the renovating from the inside out. So our text here 
states it negatively, but when Jesus refers to this idea in the Beatitude, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Who are the pure in heart? Those that have been marked out, those that are justified, those that are walking in holiness. And what's the promise? For they shall see God. They shall see God. You see, character and peace are woven together within the soul of the born-again Christian. Ultimately, it is holy people who finish the race of the Christian life. It is those who cross the finish line, and they will see God. Spurgeon said in the Greek, there is no less than three negatives in this passage. It's as though it said, no, never, no man shall see the Lord. Surely he would not Surely he who would, would not spare Satan, the bright archangel, will not admit polluted man into heaven. But he who put his son to death to bring his own elect to heaven by purifying them from sin will not bring any of us there if we remain unholy and do not submit ourselves to the gospel of Christ. Likewise, um, the promise in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible they shall see His face. Every tear wiped away, they shall see His face. Let that sink in for a minute. The one who desires holiness, this is the best promise of all. A complete vision, right? Of the triune God. It's a glorious vision. It's a, it's a joyous vision. It's a satisfying vision to be able to see. We are the bride in the presence of her beloved bridegroom in that day, never again to be separated. It's a transforming vision that will complete that work that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 In our community group last Thursday, we were going through 1 John. We looked at these verses. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will what? See Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Well, a couple of concluding applications, lengthy applications actually. For some of you Christians, maybe you struggle with assurance. You feel unworthy. Maybe you sit here today and you feel like you don't measure up. I'm sure there's a handful at least. The best way to, to take a sermon like this is to realize Christ has already made you holy. If you're truly trusting in Him, if you're truly living a life of repentance before God and walking in sincerity, Christ has made you holy. As you consider what He has done for you, Progress will continue, albeit slow at times. Maybe others here are saying, I'm just so sick of this. I keep asking for God to change me, and, and, and I keep falling into the same sins over and 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 again and again and again and again and again. You know what? You might be trying to mortify sin in your own strength rather than the Spirit of God within you. Plead with Jesus to break those sins. Plead with Him and trust Him that He will work in you. Look to Christ for your strength. Consider Him and He will help you overcome. 
Why pursue holiness? Our pursuit of holiness is grounded on what God has already done in us. We love because He first loved us. Right? 1 Corinthians 1.30 But by His doing are you in Christ Jesus. Not your doing. By His doing you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, promoting guilt in someone is an inadequate motivator to holiness. You know, to sit up here and name all the sins that I know that some of you have committed this week and, and to try to make you feel guilty is not an adequate motivator to walking in holiness. Some preachers try to do that. You can't shame people into having a changed heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit alone. Our pursuit of holiness is grounded on what Christ has already done. Christ gives us the positional holy perfection that God requires so that we can stand before Him. In chapter 10 and verse 14, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. By that one offering, perfected for all time. In verse 10, it's once and for all. Here it's for for all time. We fix our eyes on Jesus. You know the Roman Catholic Church opposed the doctrine of justification by faith alone during the Reformation primarily because it removes the fear and the guilt as a motive to obedience. They love to have the people entangled by fear, right? That's how the, even the doctrines of purgatory and all of this, it was all motivated by fear. But the Bible uses what? Grace as a motivator. What He has already done. Gratitude for what God has already done in me and redeeming a worthless sinner. Great gratitude that I want to please Him. In all respects. Next, how should we pursue holiness? First of all, we have to remember that biblical holiness is internal. It's not external. Ladies, don't go out and buy a skirt that goes down to your ankle or throw away your playing cards or whatever your thing might be. Um, No, it's something that's internal. Jesus himself said in Mark 7, 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their what? Heart is far from me. External honoring, but the heart is so far removed. This holiness does not come from some supernatural experience like Benny Hinn slaying you in the Spirit. That doesn't come that way, right? Or, or, or maybe somehow you've you know, you've, you've kept praying that you want to speak in tongues because somebody has told you if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really have the Holy Spirit, therefore you're not saved, and so you're trying to muster up speaking in tongues. That's not where holiness comes from. It's not that we're not to look to these things or, or, you know, some special feeling that you felt when you came forward at an altar call. No, those are not the things. We need to ponder what Christ has done for us, reckon ourselves dead to sin, in light of what Christ has done for us. We are identified with Him. We are united to Christ. You're united to Him in His death and even in His resurrection. It is these truths that we meditate on that actually transform us. 
We need to have time in the Word and time in prayer. Well, come on, that's so basic. I hear that so often. Yeah, that's, it is basic. It is simple, but why is it so hard for some? Right? We need to cry out with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. Participating in corporate worship and the ordinances, even as we will do, partaking of the Lord's Supper, that is a, a strengthening of the inner man. And it's vital to our spiritual growth. And then finally, some of you may be here and you don't even desire holiness. You don't care about holiness because you're not in Christ. You're still stuck in the shackles of your sin. You need to plead for mercy because God will judge you someday if you do not come to Christ. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Repent of your sins. Flee to Christ. The brokenhearted, He will not turn away. You should be brokenhearted that you're sinning against a holy, perfect, good God. Come with a broken heart and He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word and we pray for the inner man to be strengthened. We pray that You would even encourage us by the presence of the Holy Spirit and enabling us to grow in holiness and to reconcile and to be at peace with all men. And Lord, we pray this, that we might bring glory to you individually and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.